chickens. For, as demure and innocent as they may seem to the uninitiated, they have a bit of an aggressive streak to them. And as I say this, I want you to picture a buff, tattoo-laden poultry with brass knuckles invitingly punching one anthropomorphic wing hand with the other. What exactly does this have to do with rose-colored glasses, you may be asking yourself right about now? (laughs) Oh, my darlings, fear not, for it is a tangled nest of pecs, specs, and science tests I have for you tonight. Welcome, my friends and loves. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. The term pecking order came from the process by which chickens establish their hierarchy. The bigger, stronger, more decked-out birds will strut about fluffing up their feathers and shouting their praises loudly to stun their peers into submission. If that doesn't work, they start pecking. And these are no delicate taps but aggressive, beak swordsmanship that can lead to bloodshed and death. Once the order is established, it tends to remain pretty stable, barring the introduction of new friends and or foes. It sets the order for who gets to eat first, who gets the comfiest nesting box, and so forth. Generally, if there is a rooster among the hens, he tends to be the top cluck. However, If the hen house is all gals, the strongest ladybird rules the roost and does just an effective job. As an aside, one of the sources I researched chicken info from, modernfarmer.com, did say that chicken society does tend to be more civilized without roosters around, because they will want to get their jollies with the ladies non-stop throughout the day, which can be dominating, violent, and lead to health problems like disrupted tail feathers and the like if jets aren't cooled by farmer management or enough hen-to-rooster ratio. So, I found that fairly interesting. (coughs) Another thing I found interesting was the said job of Top Chick. Because she is the strongest of the bunch, it is her job to constantly keep vigil for the predators and shoo the gang to safety should a strange sound be heard or a hawk be spotted. She is also expected to have a top nose so she can sniff out a tasty snacking spot for everyone. Additionally, while she has the right to eat first, normally she will keep an eye out while the others eat and get her fill after everyone else is finished, just to make sure the lookout is kept clear. Pretty cool all in all, but... How does that relate to rose-colored glasses? Well, as I'd mentioned before, the process of establishing the pecking order can become a bloody one. The degree of violence and peckosity tends to become exacerbated when the birds are stressed. If a pecking incident turns gory, there have been instances where the birds have turned 
cannibalistic. As many, many chickens are kept for food purposes, both meat and eggs, having them kill each other, aside from being upsetting from an ethical standpoint, isn't great for business, so people began to seek out solutions. We know that some of the factors that cause chickens stress include bright intense lights, being too hot, poor ventilation, hanging around with sick and injured chickens, being bored, among other factors. And stress is linked to this increase in cannibalism. Thus, the powers that be did the only thing that made sense. In 1903, Andrew Jackson Jr. of Tennessee patented the very first form of chicken eyeglasses. Throughout the history of poultry eyewear, there have been different variations, including clear, with blinders on both sides, full sight blocking, as well as the more fashion-forward rose tints. Originally described as two oval panels that fit over the upper beak of the chicken with a pin pulled through the nostril to keep it in place, there were eventually various ways they affixed to the chicken's head, including being held in place by a strap, hooks into the nostrils, or piercing the septum, a process that did become illegal in some countries. By blocking or inhibiting the vision of the chicken, the bird is left feeling not secure enough in her surroundings to really go to Pecktown. The rose tint comes into play because it became evident that in these pecking incidents, when things got out of hand, well, much like a shark, if a chicken got the sight of blood, the pecking would continue with much greater enthusiasm. The rose tint caused the blood to be more difficult to visually spot, thus helping cut down on those shark-like tendencies when a pecking did occur. The last chicken glasses were made in 1973 by the National Band and Tag Company, but I couldn't really find out why they went out of style. Perhaps farmers found a better means of keeping chickens safe from each other and themselves. Of course, considering that to avoid pecking deaths, many large chicken production facilities have now moved on to methods such as beak trimming and de-beaking, which is exactly what it sounds like. I'm not sure that rose-colored glasses for chickens is really the crazy part of the story when it comes to things we do to solve problems that, at the end of the day, probably have a much simpler and kinder solution. So, how do rose-colored glasses affect those of us that aren't chickens? Most of us will be familiar with the phrase, to see the world through rose-colored glasses, which essentially means to gaze upon the universe with eternal optimism and youthful joy. I did some research and was able to find that no one really seems to know where the phrase actually comes from, though it can be traced back to the mid-1800s, during which rose-tinted specks were recorded as being used to treat depression in soldiers. Fun side fact, 
Blue lenses were used for insanity, and yellow for syphilis. Uh, which really makes me rethink some of the sunglasses I have in my rotation now. <clears throat> As another aside, for more interesting Civil War tidbits, check out the link for Strange and Interesting Facts About the Civil War among the rest of the resources in the show notes. Getting back to it, I found a study published online in Frontiers and Human Neuroscience that tested how the use of different colored lenses affected participants' emotional reactions to images that were classified as either positive, neutral, or unpleasant. The idea behind the study was to find out specifically how the different color-tinted lenses would affect the participants' autonomic or unconscious responses through the heart rate variability HRV, and skin conductive response, SCR, as well as cortical levels measured through EEGs that, for anyone unfamiliar, detect the electrical activity in one's brain, specifically activity known as late positive potential, or LPP, that, while showing up when viewing both unpleasant and pleasant images, had the biggest splash when viewing the pleasant ones. All of that to basically say, they wanted to know what was going on in the brain and what the physical responses were when people viewed all of these different images through different colored lenses. And they had the technology to do so. The 31 participants viewed 96 total pictures broken down into a random mix of 32 pleasant, 32 neutral, and... 32 unpleasant to be viewed in groupings using five different tint filtering conditions, red, blue, green, yellow, and neutral. In addition to the data taken from the HRV, SCR, and EEG, everyone was asked to also rate which tint they preferred as well. At the end of the study, the findings were that, by personal preference, the easy majority of participants preferred green tint, followed by blue, then red, then yellow. The highest percentage of dislike was, surprisingly, for the red tint, followed by yellow, then blue, then green. Which, from an initial preference standpoint, begs the question, why not green-tinted glasses? It doesn't really have the same kind of ring to it. However, there is more. The overall findings were that the participants' autonomic responses were elevated when viewing the unpleasant pictures, and the cortical levels were elevated when viewing the pleasant pictures, and when wearing the red-tinted lenses. Now, of course the study includes other questions, such as what other factors could lead to the differentiation between these reactions, and are there other theories that could explain why red could have this sort of impact? For example, when wearing the red lenses, participants showed a higher level of LPP, even for neutral images. But could this also relate to color psychology, red being known to correlate to dominance, anger, excitement, and, well, arousal? Overall, it was a fascinating study that put some real science behind the color of our rose-tinted lenses with the tangible effect it's having on our brains. Color aside, I began to wonder if there was any relationship between the cheery mood suggested by our rosy-specked outlook on life and the visual information our eyes are actually taking in. 
study from the University of Toronto that found there appears to be something a little more biologically tangible between our mood and visual senses than just floral optimism and good thoughts. Essentially, how this experiment worked is the team showed their subjects a series of images designed to provoke either a good, bad, or neutral mood. Sound familiar? Then, these people would be shown an image that featured a face in the center that was surrounded by what the article described as a, quote, place. Images such as pictures of a house or something like that. To help focus their attention on the face, they were asked to identify the gender of said face. The research team used functional magnetic resonance imaging, which I admittedly had to look up. It is otherwise known as an fMRI and measures brain activity by detecting the changes in blood flow that happen with various brain activity. Anyway, the team used the fMRI to see how each subject's visual cortex processed the second set of pictures based on the mood induced by the first set. So, for example, if the first set of pictures a participant looked at were, say, happy images, then the fMRI would track the information from the visual cortex of what was going on during the next set of pictures, be them neutral or unhappy, and how much of that visual information was being processed. The interesting bit about the findings, and what I know you want to hear, is that the team found that when in a good mood, the subjects took in more of the visual information from the whole of the second image, face, houses, and so forth. However, when in a bad mood, the subjects didn't really register the images of the places surrounding the face that they were asked to focus on. The fMRI showed this as they looked at certain parts of the parahippocampal cortex that processes places and how they relate to visual cortical responses. Essentially, the place space of the brain was active and juicing up, or it wasn't. Taylor Schmitz, a graduate student of Anderson's and lead author of the study, talks about toward the end of the article how this suggests that people in good moods process a larger number of objects in the environment and perhaps allow us to see things from a more global perspective, which is awesome. I'm paraphrasing, but can also have pitfalls, such as becoming more easily distracted, having a harder time focusing, and so on. While being in a bad mood can lend greater focus and honing in, but perhaps also losing sight of the bigger picture. All in all, I think it's an extremely intriguing study, and one that, at least for me, makes me rethink how I might approach my own planning and goal setting when in different moods. Perhaps even donning a pair of rose-colored specs, even if we don't know exactly why it is they do what they do. At the very least, it'll make me less likely to peck anyone to death. Maybe. They don't know what it's like to see you from my eyes. They never have you ride slip at night. Never get to kiss you when you wake and smile. I realize we got a little more in-depth with some of the study details and numbers and letters than we have on some of our past science-based episodes, but this was one of those that I found really hard to leave some of the finer points out, and I do have the studies linked in the show notes if you want to take a look. Thank you so much, though, for joining me through the Fantastically Strange, 
I hope that you've enjoyed our journey. Come visit for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at fantasticallystrange and Twitter at fantasticoddpod. If you've enjoyed the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I write, research, edit, and do all of the things myself. And I am so honored to be able to bring you stories about topics I'm passionate about. And your ear means the world to me. If you do want to support the show, I wouldn't say no to you visiting patreon.com slash rocketfox, where you can get early access to weekly episodes, bonus content, including outtakes and more, as well as goodies from my other work. If you do have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you so much again, and I cannot wait to see you next time.